People don't talk about looting as much as they used to. They also don't talk about criminal lynchings, which have been the way groups of neighbors have responded to the lawlessness in the midst of such high crime. There is no mention of dismembered people, who have been proof of the escalation of urban violence in the recent years. These things aren't talked about anymore, not because they have ceased to occur, but because they have become normalized as part of the landscape of the country and its crisis. We'll be exploring that and more in this episode of Are You Listening? The Global Voices podcast where we introduce you to people, places, and events from around the world that aren't getting the media coverage they deserve. This is Lauren, news editor at Global Voices. I live in Bilbao, Spain. And I'm Sahar, managing editor at Global Voices. I live right outside of San Francisco. The podcast, Are You Listening?, takes a look at some of the stories that have recently come out of the Global Voices newsroom. And in this episode, we'll take you to Venezuela, Indian-administered Kashmir, Thailand, Nigeria, and Brazil. Dictatorship is the word many Venezuelans have been using to describe the last few months in their country. On March 30th, Venezuela's Supreme Court of Justice effectively nullified the National Assembly and gave some of its powers to President Nicolás Maduro. Political turmoil had been brewing long before the decision, but for many Venezuelans it was confirmation that their country had dangerously veered off the path of democracy. Some described it as a self-inflicted coup people began to protest. The court reversed course days later, but despite the reinstatement of the National Assembly, protesters continued to mobilize every day and in large numbers, even when confronted with deadly police aggression. For the Venezuelans out in the streets, it isn't just about politics. For one, the country is crippled by a deep economic crisis, which means hunger and food shortages. Health facilities are in poor condition, and vital medicines can be hard to find. The murder rate is among the highest in the world. And the right to know about all of this that's happening, the right to information, is under threat, with the government's increasing control over media and the internet connections in the country being slow and precarious. The complex situation in Venezuela is an incredible burden for the people to bear, and is changing the country in ways that are troubling. Luis Carlos Diaz is a Global Voices contributor and journalist in Venezuela who recently wrote a piece on this very topic called Bodies Die, Countries Don't, What the Venezuelan Crisis Takes Away From Us. Global Voices Latin America editor Laura Vidal is here now to narrate it for us. Bodies Die, Countries Don't, What the Venezuela Crisis Takes Away From Us by Luis Carlos Diaz. Every day that Venezuela continues under a Chavismo government, which has been in power for over 15 years, the country falls further and further. And it will continue to fall, because contrary to what many keep saying, there is no stopping point. Countries are bottomless. Seriously, two years ago, it seemed everything had already reached its breaking point. But there wasn't yet talk of people searching for food in the trash. Now. They not only look for it, but they fight over it. Tomorrow they'll raffle it off, 
or the government will find whoever throws something in the trash. Or who knows what else. People don't talk about looting as much as they used to. They also don't talk about criminal lynchings, which have been the way groups of neighbors have responded to the lawlessness in the midst of such high crime. There is no mention of dismembered people, who have been proof of the escalation of urban violence in the recent years. These things aren't talked about anymore, not because they have ceased to occur, but because they have become normalized as part of the landscape of the country and its crisis. Bodies die, countries don't. Things go wrong, but they can get even worse. We could give tons of examples to prove it, but we'll stick with this too. The highest inflation in the world for the fifth consecutive year and the lowest productivity in our recent history. The culprit for this is the centralized economy and the controls created by Chavismo to increase their quotas of corruption. You can say that this economy crisis is part of a conspiracy of businessmen and retailers, but has anyone ever met a retailer who makes money in scenarios where they can sell? Thinking, as many argue, that there are opponents who want power, not now, but later, so they can avoid assuming the costs that will come with a takeover right now is childish. The cost of repairing the country will only rise. Aspiring to conquer a destitute government or municipality is just as useless as continuing to protest from the opposition. The country cannot feed its population today, and tomorrow it will be even worse off. So the faster the production model, the centralized economy, the corrupt game of exchange controls, prices and distribution change, the less it will cost to take the reins. Venezuela can't cover its own debts. So the sooner there is a change in power, and these debts are renegotiated, the better for everyone. However, in order to restore some institutions, some conditions are necessary, but that will take time. Guarantees are needed that the government of the next term can be sustained. Because if a group of drug traffickers, corrupt politicians and torturers are in power, they'll be much worse off acting from the opposition with stolen money. That is why it's important to get some changes in the National Electoral Council. Raising costs to the armed forces or the Supreme Court of Justice can be useful. Unlocking the National Assembly status can help. But there is no guarantee of anything. You know it. I know it. We don't have a manual for living under a dictatorship. Now, Where everything is stuck is how to get power first. That is why formulas are discussed and there are disagreements. What surprises me is how nearly everyone is lost, including those who speak with strength and security, because even for them, the infallible plan that they believe will work collapses quickly. That is why they have opted to attack each other or point fingers at opponents, because it's easier. Because you put them in power, they start to stumble. A march is organized, but we don't know what will happen next. A protest faces a picket line. But afterwards, no one knows what will happen in the face of the second. Disobedience sounds rebellious, but then it doesn't translate. And the opposition majority is circumstantial. The majority will support you if the issue is peaceful. If it's not, they pick up and leave 
because the guarantee is certain and most know that their life is worth more than the thugs. That means, curiously enough, that those who are doing more than others are those who are at the forefront of the dialogue playing many roles, despite being insulted. They are there without knowing what comes next, negotiating with kidnappers, using their language even when this earns the contempt of the dissidents. But more interestingly, we cannot stop being unhappy, because they actually need more, because dialogue alone is useless, because people cannot stop demanding, because other countries would like to help, but do not understand how, because it is also costly for them, because every day is worse, every day we can withstand less, and wasting time is losing what our lives could be, and what totalitarianism has denied us. We would like simple worries. We'd like to get a little bit bored. We would like another certainty other than tomorrow will be worse. Just to switch it up. To learn more about the crises affecting Venezuela, visit globalvoices.org and search What is Happening in Venezuela. Jollof rice. This West African dish is comforting, it's celebrated, and it's controversial. It has many variations across the region, and there's somewhat of a rivalry between them all over whose recipe is better. So if you gather people from Nigeria, Ghana, Senegal, and the Gambia all together in a room and ask them how to make jollof rice, they probably aren't going to agree. The essential ingredients are rice, tomatoes, onions, and chili peppers. At least that's what no one disputes, to the best of our knowledge. Then some versions have meat, lamb, goat, beef, or prawns. Peas, peppers, carrots are another option, or not, depending on which country you're from. What perhaps was a simmering conflict before over whose recipe is better was recently brought to a boil by CNN journalist Richard Quest. While on a recent trip to Nigeria, he tweeted, Jollof rice. Delicious. Ghana or Nigeria? Which is best? I ain't getting involved in the Jollof war. But that was only the beginning. In an on-air segment later on with Quest, Nigeria's Minister of Information and Culture, Lai Mohammed, unintentionally triggered outrage in his own country over Jollof rice. We'll talk about jollof rice in just a moment. Which country makes the best jollof rice? <laughs> I want to say probably Senegal. Senegal! I hear a shock across the country. I hear a sigh across the country. Nigerians were shocked at what they considered a betrayal of their national pride. Richard Quest later said the minister had misunderstood the question to be which country jollof rice is originally from, and it did originate in Senegal. But that didn't seem to put a lid on the outrage. On Twitter, for example, one person called it pure treason, while someone else quipped, Does it mean Lai Muhammad cannot say the truth for once? Even on jollof rice, he had to lie. Why is he like this? It is often said that food has the power to bring people together, bring them joy, 
but it seems that when served with a side of national pride, it can also do just the opposite. Many thanks to Nawach Egbuniki, who originally reported this story on the Global Voices website. My mother wants me to go see a doctor, but I'm afraid of going to a hospital. I'm afraid they will find me. This fear is in me now. That's Farooq Ahmed Dar, a 26-year-old shawl weaver from the Indian Administered Territory of Kashmir. On April 9th, when India's northeastern state was swamped in protests, a video of Farooq tied to the hood of an Indian military vehicle as it patrolled villages in Kashmir went viral. Farooq was being used as a human shield against demonstrators pelting stones. In shakily shot mobile footage, you can clearly hear military personnel announcing over a megaphone, this is what will happen to stone pelters. Only, Farooq said he was no stone pelter. He was one of the 6.5% of the electorate in the state that actually turned up to vote on April 9th, a day marked by protests in which eight demonstrators were killed when the army opened fire. Dar is part of a small portion of the population who still choose to place their faith in democratic processes, despite the fact that fundamental rights protected by the Indian constitution, such as the right to life and equality before law and freedom from arbitrary arrests, have been routinely violated over the last 27 years in the state. Dar spoke to Global Voices partner Video Volunteers, an organization that produces videos on underreported stories through correspondents who come from marginalized communities in India. They treated me like a football. I'm a human being, not a toy, he said. This is not the only such video to have emerged recently out of Kashmir. Several videos of armed forces reportedly beating or torturing Kashmiri youth are circulating on social media some of them apparently shot by army personnel themselves. The cybercrime cell of the Jammu and Kashmir State Police in Srinagar are trying to identify and ban users who upload such videos. Kashmir is infamous as the largest militarized zone in the world. The rise of a resistance movement there in the late 1980s resulted in Indian authorities heavily deploying military and paramilitary forces since the early 1990s. This militarization has been legally cemented by two laws, the Armed Forces Special Powers Act of 1990 empowers armed personnel to fire upon or otherwise use force even to the causing of death in a case of perceived contravention of law and order. The Public Safety Act of 1978, meanwhile, has provisions for arresting and jailing a person without trial for two years just on the suspicion that he or she may disrupt public order or act in some way against the security of the state. Between July and October 2016, over 7,000 Kashmiris, most of them young boys, were jailed under this law. Children as young as 13 were not spared. Rights groups documenting human rights abuses in the valley estimate that in the last 27 years, over 70,000 people have been killed. Over 8,000 people have suffered forced disappearance, and there are over 6,000 unknown, unmarked, and mass graves. Indian authorities also regularly cut off Kashmiri's access to information. For example, mobile high-speed internet was blocked in the valley on April 17th, 
that wasn't the first time. Since 2012, the state has cut off the internet for citizens an astounding 28 times. Social media, especially Facebook, is widely used by Kashmiri youth as a means of expressing dissent and presenting an alternate view to mainstream media depictions of their lives. An army probe into Farouk's incident concluded that the commanding officer took the decision reluctantly and as a last resort, when he realized that his unit had to pass an area where people had gathered to protest. India's Attorney General Mukul Rohotki also extended his support, saying that, quote, The army is dealing with terrorists, not protesters, so they will have to be dealt with. Everyone should look at the army with pride. They are doing a great job. There isn't much hope for justice in Farooq's case, given the history of Kashmir and the current political climate in India, where criticizing army actions is immediately seen as unpatriotic. Meanwhile, Farooq and his mother continue to live in insecurity. Farooq's brother was allegedly killed by the army in the 1990s. The politicians, army, media will move on to the next big issue. But what will happen to Farooq? To follow more coverage on Kashmir, visit our website, globalvoices.org, and search the Kashmiri people versus the Indian state. Is merely following or being Facebook friends with someone who speaks out against the government a crime? Well, in Thailand, it just might be. The country's Ministry of Digital Economy and Society is telling Thai citizens to unfriend and unfollow three critics of the military-backed government, or risk being accused of violating the 2007 Computer Crimes Act. The ministry identified the three in a public statement. They are Dr. Samsa Jiamthi Rasakul, Dr. Pavan Chacha Val Pongpun, and Andrew McGregor Marshall. Samsuk is a historian who taught at Tamaset University in Bangkok for two decades until he was fired over his criticism of the 2014 military coup that brought the current government into power. Pavan is a lecturer based in Japan. Marshall is a former Reuters correspondent based in Bangkok, whose book about the Thai monarchy was banned in Thailand in 2011. Aside from being critics of the Thai government, they are all accused of violating the Les Majeste Law, or Anti-Royal Insult Law. All have left Thailand to avoid political persecution. In Thailand, the army grabbed power in 2014 and continues to exert its influence through the constitution that it drafted in 2016. It imposed a strict regulation of the media and has aggressively implemented the pre-existing anti-royal insult law, which some analysts believe is intended to silence the opposition and other critics of the junta. The ministry's statement does not explain why it is a crime to follow, contact, or share the three's social media accounts. It also doesn't describe the alleged crimes committed by the exiled critics. Marshall immediately urged his Thai friends to unfollow him on Facebook so that they could avoid any legal problems. This is a ridiculous and oppressive order, but I don't want any innocent people being targeted just because they follow my journalism, he said. He also challenged Thai authorities. I believe that Thais deserve to know what is really going on, not lies and propaganda, he said. Thai people are smart enough to think for themselves 
and decide what is true and what is not. Nobody ever wins by trying to suppress the truth. Pavan, on his part, wrote that he and his university colleagues speculated on the limits of the rule. Was it suddenly illegal to contact him on Facebook or send homework to him by email? The targeting of the three and the subsequent media attention has not reduced their number of online followers. Instead, it's done the opposite. Marshall wrote that he has accrued an additional 700 Facebook followers since the government released the statement. Human rights organization Amnesty International also weighed in on the development and said, The Thai authorities have plunged to fresh depths in restricting people's freedom of expression. After imprisoning people for what they say both online and offline, and hounding critics into exile, they want to cut people off from each other altogether. Meanwhile, the country's prime minister has reportedly ordered government ministries to go after other internet users in other countries who often insult the royal family. It's clearly not a good moment for free expression in Thailand. Many thanks to Mong Palatino, who originally reported this story on the Global Voices website. Four years ago, a 25-year-old Brazilian man named Rafael Braga Vieira was homeless, collecting recyclables to survive. One day in June, he says he was doing just that in Rio de Janeiro when police arrested him. There was a protest going on, one of the massive demonstrations against corruption and the government's spending priorities that was taking over Brazil's streets at the time. Rafael had in his possession bottles of disinfectant and bleach. He says they were part of the recyclables that he had collected. Police, however, charged him with carrying explosives and he was sentenced to five years in prison before the end of 2013. He was the only person sent to prison in connection with the June 2013 protests, but his case was just the beginning of a darker saga that activists and legal experts today say symbolizes the institutionalized racism of Brazil's judicial system and the country's criminalization of poverty. Rafael remained in jail until December 2015, when a court allowed him to serve out the rest of his term at his mother's home in Rio, wearing an electronic anklet. A month later, however, police arrested him again for carrying 0.6 grams of marijuana and a firework, the kind used by drug traffickers to alert gangs when police enter the community. On April 20, 2017, Rafael was convicted of drug trafficking. This time, a court sentenced him to 11 years and three months in prison, despite the best efforts of his supporters, who had repeatedly pointed out the contradictions and irregularities in Rafael's two trials. The judge in his first trial in 2013 seemed to have ignored a technical report by Rio de Janeiro's state bomb squad. That document concluded that cleaning products he was carrying had minimum explosive capacity. Partly because the bottles are made of plastic, while Molotov cocktails are normally made using glass bottles. Raphael denied the charges that led to his second arrest in 2016, accusing officers of assaulting him and forging evidence, something not uncommon in Brazilian policing, where suspects are often beaten into denouncing drug traffickers. In the second trial, the court threw out the one witness called in his defense, a neighbor who corroborated his version of events. Their argument? The neighbor had a family relationship with Rafael. 
The prosecution's five witnesses were all police officers with conflicting testimonies. For example, one officer said Rafael was transported to the police station in the trunk of a patrol car, while another said he was placed in the back seat. Remarkably, the judge also refused to review video surveillance footage from cameras in the area where Rafael was arrested, ruling that it was, quote, unnecessary to the conclusion of the case. Many legal experts have criticized the sentence, arguing that more than 11 years in prison is a wildly severe punishment for possessing a small amount of marijuana. Brazil's laws on drugs allow the courts to treat defendants in enormously different ways. While drug use has been decriminalized, the law doesn't offer clear definitions of what differentiates between use and trafficking, leaving the decision to police officers and judges on a case-by-case basis. Some argue that this vague language found in these laws actually reinforces racist prejudices in Brazil's justice system. Protests have sprung up in Rafael's defense, and the verdict and sentencing have been widely criticized. Lawyer and professor Antonio Pedro argued, In a country whose history of human rights violations by the police institution is immense, where the overwhelming majority of the population says they do not trust the police, condemnations based solely on the police officer's word cannot be admitted. And federal deputy and human rights activist Jean Willis said, A script was fulfilled. The judge merely acted as expected. He gave Raphael a verdict, and so did all of us. In summing up all the disgrace of such typical extreme Brazilian poverty in the condemnation of one more black man, the judge wrote to whom the laws in Brazil serve. Many thanks to Mariana Parra and Rafael Tasco Garcia, who originally reported this story on the Global Voices website and helped us narrate the story. And that's a wrap. This is Sahar. And Lauren. Curious how we find these stories? Well, we're not like other news organizations. Global Voices is an international network of passionate people who know their way around the internet and keep tabs on the conversations happening in their regions. Our 1,400 mostly volunteer writers, editors, and translators cover stories from 167 countries and translate them into more than 30 languages. Together, we've been building bridges of understanding, as we like to call them, through our digital reporting since 2005. This episode was made possible by all the inspiring work of our Global Voices authors, translators, and editors. So many thanks to all of you out there. A special thank you as well to Kat Betwigas, who helped us put this episode together. Don't forget, if you like what you heard, please share this episode with your friends on Facebook and Twitter. In this episode, we featured Creative Commons licensed music from the Free Music Archive, including Let's Start at the Beginning by Lee Rosevier, The Sun is Scheduled to Come Out Tomorrow by Chris Zabriskie, Oldie Song by David Seste, Aurora Borealis by Lee Rosevier, Backed Vibes Clean by Kevin McLeod, Skeptic by Poddington Bear, and Resist by El Zombie Flash. Dear listeners, thank you for tuning in to Are You Listening?, we hope you enjoyed it. Y la economía tiene que crecer, porque si no crece es una tragedia. Inventamos una...
esa montaña de consumo superfluo y hay que tirar y vivir comprando y tirando.